Today's talk is titled The Coloniality of Data Work. And I'm going to first uh, give some definitions of what I mean by, by both data work and coloniality. Then with this, I'm going to then lay my main argument for today, which is that data production for artificial intelligence when it is outsourced through digital platforms to the global south, these configurations of data production, both are extractivist in nature, but also they serve to impose particular meanings and understandings into data sets. And then when I laid out this uh, problematic, this duality of data production as both extraction and imposition, I will end my talk by answering the question, what next? So what is data work? Um, when I started doing research on this topic, I came to uh, what we call in computer science crowdsourcing, uh, ghost work as well, or the micro work, crowd work, and so on. When I came to this world, I was a researcher in the past in France, and I was focusing mainly on the economy. So platforms that intermediate uh, intermediaries between clients and workers for services and goods. I think, for example, of Uber and Uber Eats and other uh, ride-hailing and delivery platforms that are intermediaries between, I guess you said, users or clients and the workers. But then when I chose to approach this topic from uh, the lens of artificial intelligence data production, and especially through a fellowship that I did at the Weizenbaum Institute in Berlin, Germany, sadly it was virtual because of the pandemic, but through my uh, dialogues with one of my colleagues there, Milagros Michelli, he was also focusing on data production, but not on platforms, but when it is done inside, uh, sorry, on site through what is called business process outsourcing companies, then we realized that we needed a new term uh, to describe these ways in which data is produced and all the labor that is involved in this production of data. And we came across this term that was uh, really recently being used by other colleagues in other fields, so for example, how med medical uh, or healthcare workers would, for example, input data and uh, uh, review the outputs of uh, machine learning algorithms as a, as a type of task in their normal uh, work schedules. And then we were, think we're thinking this is also something, this phenomenon of collecting, classifying, uh, verifying algorithms, these type of tasks that are related to artificial intelligence, we were also seeing it in platforms and also in BPOs. So then we gave a definition, we tried to formalize this collective type of tasks of work that were uh, being tied to artificial intelligence development and deployment under this term of data work. In a paper that we hope to publish at the end of this year called the Data Production Dispositive, and by the way, part of the results that I'm going to give today in this lecture are uh, related to those results of that paper. So we give a formal definition of data work as the human labor necessary for data production, in this case for machine learning, which is the major type of the, uh, artificial intelligence out there. And data work involves the collection, curation, classification, labeling, and verification of data. Now, because this talk is about also, uh, oh, before I go to talk about the coloniality of data work, then I'm going to uh, dive more into the types of outsourced tasks that I've been studying uh, that are core of today's analysis. So first is the generation of data. Uh, by the way, here, every time I, talk, I will talk about a type of task, I'm going to bring 
instructions that workers receive from this particular task to give examples of it. So data generations is any time of data collection from the environment, environment of the workers. Think, for example, when Google wants images of streets for Google Street View and Google Maps, there is a car that goes around cities collecting images of those cities. So there is a worker driving the car. Therefore, it's a type of data work that is aimed at generating data for the company. And another example that we have, for example, in, in, in platform work is this task that asked workers the following. You can earn $2.5 by completing the task to your wear glasses. Upload a picture of a document with your prescription values now. So again, data generation is any type of data uh, input or harnessing data from the environment through, through, for example, taking pictures or videos or recordings and so on. And there is, uh, I'm gonna go to annotation at the last one because it's the most, uh, the, the type of task that is seen in, in platforms the most. So I'm gonna provide a bit more than one example for that, but then there is verification of it. When a AI systems produce an output, there's often errors or a certain accuracy of the output and they needs to be verified by workers. So for example, here in the task, a worker was asked to the following. You'll be shown two lists of up to eight search suggestions each. This was for a very popular search engine. Uh, this was a task made by uh, one of the big tech companies in the world. And then the task says, your task is to indicate which list suggestion is better. So in this example, the company would show the results for a particular query of their search engine, and then a second one from a competitor's uh, search engine and ask the worker, can you tell us which one is better and tell us why? Uh, the final one is the impersonation, which is the rarest form of task that we, uh, my colleagues at the Vitsum, my Institute and I uh, analyzed. Uh, in this case was for a chatbot for a social major social media company. And the worker was instructed to uh, impersonate a chatbot and to answer the queries of a, of a user following a particular set of rules. So for example, here's the says, as the assistant or the chatbot, the user, or the, so the, the user using the chatbot will initiate a conversation. You, being the worker, will need to use the facts, meaning the, cert, the, the, the answers that the chatbot would provide to answer the user's question. And finally, there is annotation, which I mentioned before, is the most prevalent type of task in uh, platform labor and that sourced uh, data work. In this example, uh, it says, based on the test, in each task, select one of the three options. This was for a content moderation algorithm to filter adult content. And the options for the worker were to label the, the text as sexually explicit, suggestive, or non-sexual. And now I have another example that is one of the most common ones that I saw for one of the particular platforms that I studied, which is called semantic segmentation. And this task is again labeling it's destined to train self-driving cars. And what happens here is that workers are presented with an image like the one on the left, and they have to uh, color the image like the one on the right. And what happens here is that for a computer, the image is just pixels. So what the worker is doing with the colors is to tell the computer what objects and what types of objects or form of classification uh, is to identify the object. So for example, let's say uh, vehicles uh, it, sorry, the worker has to label their objects in red for vehicles, purple for uh, uh, or magenta for the street, yellow for the buildings, and green for the trees, and so on. So again, a form of uh, semantic segmentation then is a form of providing meaning and give meaning to data. And this meaning-making process is central for the second argument of today of 
data work being a form of imposition of meaning on data. Now, colleagues from Google uh, published a paper recently in the Conference of uh, Human Factors in Computer Systems called CHI, and the title was very compelling to me. It, the title of the paper is, Everyone Wants to Do the Model Work, Not the Data Work. And what happened is that this labor-intensive process of generating data, uh, classifying or labeling the data, uh, verifying the algorithmic outputs, or even impersonating the AI, it's a labor-intensive process that in many cases is outsourced to other people outside of companies. And this is where BPO companies or inside um, labeling companies, like for example, Sama, uh, or platforms like the one that is in the screen here, like Amazon Mechanical Turk, uh, come to play. And it's this is a form of companies that develop AI to outsource these forms of data work. So as a uh, in early in my research, I, I tried to uh, study where these platforms were located. I'm going to provide some examples of my, of my uh, results of like the geographies of this type of data work. But what I wanted to say is that my research has focused on three particular platforms that I call that anonymize as click rating, task source, and worker hub. And that the workers that I'm focusing on for this research are mainly located in Venezuela. And I will provide arguments later of why most of the workers in the data work uh, ecosystem platforms in this uh, global market are located in this country. But then I want to provide first a definition of what is coloniality. So I, I wanted to study data work and data, and data production, outsourced data production from the lens of coloniality. It comes from a stream of scholarship originated in Latin America, especially from the thinking of Aníbal Quijano, a Peruvian uh, sociologist, uh, which is the notion of coloniality as the historical power structures that emerged during colonialism, the most general form of domination in the world today, according to Quijano, that defines labor, culture, the economy and knowledge. Is it, is, it's a way of thinking about power structures today as it's not originated recently, but being the manifestation of long-term power inequalities that have emerged through colonial uh, expansion. And then when we think about data in these terms, uh, there are two aspects of coloniality uh, that I think are very important to uh, study. Uh, data production or datafication today. The first one is seeing it as an extractivist point of view. Think, for example, of how a colonization uh, revolved in many cases around the extraction of goods from the colonists and import them into the metropolis or the course of these empires in the past and even today in any way. So in many, many ways in which colonialism, colonialism still exists. So for Coltrane me here is when they, they, these researchers were thinking about data in terms of coloniality, and then especially around the process of datafication, which is the extraction, transformation, and exploitation of data from social interactions, which is really tied to the four types of tasks that I just uh, discussed. And so, they see data datafication as a, then an extractivist uh, approach to data as something that is collected through surveillance, for example, something that is uh, extracted from social interactions to produce value for particular companies. And then Paula Ricarte, who is uh, uh, also a social scientist from Mexico, she thought of data pro also pr uh, production, especially data-centric technologies as forms of epistemic dominance. So another aspect of coloniality that Quijano and other decolonial thinkers uh, were discussing is how colonialism is not only an extractivist project, but it's also one of imposition. 
Uh, one of the things, for example, that Spanish colonizers did when they arrived to the America, uh, to the Americas to conquer indigenous uh, civilizations in the continent was to destroy, for example, uh, early forms of religion, early forms of knowledge, and impose, for example, their own religion and their own systems of seeing the world. So Ricardo, for example, argues that data-centric uh, technologies through this rationalization on data also provide particular ways of seeing the world. And I quote also, for example, uh, the work on data feminism by Ignacio and Klein, who argue then, and other people from uh, media and, and communication who argue that the data is an ex extraction of reality, therefore it's only one way of seeing reality. And data-centric technologies, therefore, they impose this only way of seeing the world through data onto subjects and individuals. So this framework of data as both produced through extraction, but also aimed at imposed particular ways of seeing the world is the core of my argument today. Now, as I mentioned before, early in my research, I tried to understand the geographies of data work platforms. And what I did was that I uh, collected data from uh, web traffic aggregator websites that uh, analyze connections between servers and computers and provide a geographic location for these connections. And so what I did was that I centered my analysis on the websites in which platforms are hosted. And then by looking at the geographic, geographical configurations of that, I realized that most of the workers are located in the United States, but also from the second country that hosts most of the workers according to the web traffic is Venezuela, followed by India, the Philippines, Brazil, Russia, Mexico, Ukraine, the UK and Spain. Now, workers from, sorry, colleagues from the Oxford Intern Institute have been doing similar work trying to understand the geographies of online work, not only for data work, but all other types of online work, such as freelancing, like design and other works. Uh, for example, um, people who are like digital nomads and so on who use other types of platforms to do online work. And what they found was that similar results to mine, like indeed, most of them come from the United States, but also from countries that are traditionally associated with the business process of sourcing industry, especially for technology, uh, such as uh, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and the Philippines. But then this is the map of my findings, similar as, uh, as I mentioned, for example, the United States, India are highly represented. But what I found is that Venezuela was a new player, a new key player in this outsourced work and where most of the workers outside of the United States were located. And therefore the center of my analysis here, my research, since I myself, I am a Latin American. So that was also another, uh, another uh, point for me to uh, focus my analysis and my study on the Venezuelan case. So why Venezuela? Why is Venezuela hosting most of the workers outside of the United States? And the reason is that Venezuela is a country experiencing a deep socioeconomic crisis. It has the highest levels of inflation in the world, which peaked in 2018, as you can see in the graph here, at the several thousand percent, uh, which means in concrete terms that salaries are depreciated. A minimum wage, for example, according to one Venezuelan I talked to was uh, less than a dollar. Uh, the Venezuelan was a manager for the uh, Venezuelan state-owned oil company, PDVSA. And she said that she, back in the 2000s, she used to, for example, have the luxury of going, going to her to trip to Spain to visit relatives once a year. But now her salary was worth, when I spoke to her in 2021, uh, less than $1 per month. 
So what in, in concrete terms, what it means for workers is that access to goods and services is reduced. Many have to rely on the informal market to provide these goods. And uh, the wages, the official wages still tied to the Bolivars are not enough to even buy food or staple food, uh, other types of uh, essential services uh, like water, for example, or electricity as well, because also the state has retreated because of the crisis. And also services, essential services like healthcare and education were severely affected even more since the pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic started. So it means that the economic situation, the local label market is very difficult for many uh, individuals. And that's what makes platforms so appealing because platforms provide this task, which are poorly paid in a sense, but because of the hyperinflation, this revenue in US dollars or rather cents remains essential for many workers who choose to work for these platforms in Venezuela. So I'm going to provide a few examples of uh, quotes from the workers that are interviewed. So the first one is Melba, the one that, uh, the, the, the woman that who is retired from the um, state oil company. She said to me, even though I receive a salary and a pension and my husband as well, our paychecks don't cover anything. I wonder how can people survive here in Venezuela when someone like me with a monthly pension worth 1,800,000 bolivares, meaning one US dollar per month, can't buy half a dozen eggs. You can't buy a piece of cheese or bread. And so Wilmer explains how uh, he, for example, while he was being an IT specialist as a job, he had to uh, use also uh, online platforms to have another source of income because it was not enough for his normal wage to, for him to pay for uh, goods and services. So he says here, the economic crisis has pushed many Venezuelans like myself to find work alternatives online. Thank God that I have a computer and internet connection. Wages here have been very low in the past four years. And many of us had to look online for external sources of income and improve our living conditions a bit. And finally, as I mentioned, uh, healthcare and education have been uh, incredibly affected by uh, by the pandemic. So, for example, there was an, there, there were occasions in which children were stuck at home with their parents. Their parents were struggling to find work, and so many children also joined, for example, these uh, uh, this collective endeavor of families to work for platforms to have a source of income for the family. So, Maria here who used to be a hairstylist in Colombia before she returned to Venezuela because of the coronavirus pandemic, she said to me that herself, her husband, Roberto, and her three children, Daniela, Andres, and Camila, they all work for the platform. And she said, she says, we distribute the tasks. For example, I can go buy groceries and the others still, sorry, stay working at home. We all cooperate with a team. And so this is another way of saying like these families all together have to rely on the platform as a source of income, including children, because of the difficult, difficult conditions of Venezuela during the pandemic and the crisis as well. But finally, what I found is, because I said, I, I was, when I was doing this type of research, I was wondering why Venezuela, if there are other countries as well in which uh, there are local markets that are, uh, difficult uh, and also where the informal economy is the norm. And actually in most of the countries from the, what we call the global South, the informal economy may not having a stable source of income not having employment contract with a particular company. It's that's not the norm and historically hasn't been the norm. But what happens with Venezuela is that they have the infrastructure necessary for online labor. And today the country is in crisis, but during the 2000s with oil prices were very high, actually they're returning to be very high as well because of the war in, in Ukraine. Um, 
the Chavez government implemented many socialist policies to create the infrastructure that allows today for online work. So the in the image here, there's a computer called the Canaima computer, which was built, funded and built in Venezuela by the government and distributed to children in the early 2010s. Today, during the pandemic, most of the workers that I've interviewed, they use these computers because they have become the cheapest way uh, of having a computer uh, to work online. And also the electricity and the internet connection, although they are unreliable today because of the crisis, they still allow many, many people to uh, connect to the internet and provide work, uh, sorry, and uh, perform tasks online for the platforms. Now, because of the also the lack of regulations, generally speaking, in the gig economy, um, um, and I, I just see that I, I apologize, I didn't change the little text next to the uh, uh, logos. But what what I want to say here is that in platform work, um, platforms have a lot of power because of the lack of regulations and interventions from the uh, local governments. So what happens is that they they are allowed to set their own rules. Uh, for the workers. So they pay low wages uh, and as little as possible, as long as the work keeps flowing and the workers keep logging into the platforms. There is also no recourse, meaning that workers can be fired at any time and without any form of contestation or any form for them to voice any concerns or complaints. And finally, that workers, because of the uh, long hours and the lack of protections that they receive from the platforms as well, they usually... Um, those workers who I spoke with told me that they have, for example, have issues related to uh, sitting for long hours, but also a lot of stress and the uncertainty and the, pro and the, and the fear of being terminated or uh, uh, deactivated by the platform as well. And so what I, with the case of Maria, especially also thinking of how data work is configured today uh, from a historical point of view, um, also makes me think of data work today being a form of 21st century peace work, which is an argument that has also been laid out by uh, Mariel Gray and uh, uh, Duval from the University of California as well. Uh, I wanted to just talk a little bit more about Maria, the worker that I mentioned, whose entire family works for the flat platform. And she says, for example, here, those who are working, let's say full time are my husband and me. When we are resting, our children work. They just fall in. I will tell them, we'll rest, or I don't feel well, or my husband would tell them, it hurts from sitting so long. So we stop working and they work for a while. I can't have my kids working full time. No, it's on us to work. They just fill in. So this is another way of peace work, which has been historically associated with the Industrial Revolution. Uh, this image, for example, uh, it's on this slide, is from the 1930s in New York, in which the garment industry would employ many migrant uh, women and their children as uh, peace workers, meaning that they would be paid per piece, but not considered as full-time workers. So this is to say that all this phenomenon of uh, data work, as it is in Venezuela, it's in a sense, new because of the power of intermediation of platforms, the ability for them to connect companies developing AI in the global north with workers uh, in difficult situations, in this case, from the global south. But the power differentials and the way workers are considered as and treated as peace workers is not new. The role of women and children in this, in this, in this types of work is also not new. And it also shows that when 
there's a lack of regulations and a lack of protections when workers are left alone and companies are left unchecked, those who are most vulnerable or marginalized are the ones who are, are in this case, being exploited the most. Again, I reiterate, historically being the case of women and children, and we still see here uh, between them and also other types of uh, marginalized populations who perform these types of work when there is no other protections for them. And so in terms of uh, coloniality of data work, what it means is then that this is yet another way of seeing uh, coloniality still existing in the 21st century, meaning another way of seeing that companies in the global north are still employing workers in precarious conditions in the global south and profiting from the uh, difficult situation there and the lack of regulations to extract value from these types of work. Now, in the third part of today's talk, then I'm going to talk more about how this process of data production through platforms is also one, one of epistemic dominance and impositions of meanings on data through, um, through uh, the tasks. So what I did with uh, uh, my colleague Milagros Michele de Vatsimam Institute is that we had 206 instructions from platforms mainly, and we analyzed them to look at the discourse using a method called uh, dispositive analysis, meaning that we have all these forms of text and all we talked, spoke to many workers, also managers and practitioners from both BPOs and platforms to understand how uh, power is uh, reproduced and structured in this uh, in data production through the lens of what we call linguistically performed elements. Those are the instructions that workers receive. Also non-linguistic aspects such as the social relations and the environments in which, in which workers perform data work. And finally, all the materializations around this type of data production that serve the particular role of reproducing certain discourses and data. So our first argument now speaking, like, like speaking in terms of linguistically performed elements, so all the discourses that are embedded in the instructions, we argue that normalized classifications, binary and residual categories, and the warnings that are present in instructions serve to reproduce particular ways of seeing the world or particular worldviews. So for example, in the instructions here, you, uh, you can see the first one says, in this task, you will be determining the race of the persons in the images. This was this is a task for facial recognition. You should select only one of the following categories, white, African-American, Latinx, Hispanic, Asian, Indian, or ambiguous. So what happens here is what we call is a normalized classification from the requesters, which who we suspect are located in North America or in the United States, because these are ways of seeing racial categorizations that are very central to an, a, a way of seeing the world from North America. For example, the category African-American, instead of, for example, of thinking of someone from African descent, for example, or the category Latinx, which is a category that emerged from the United States as well. And imposing this category is only guessing, making workers to guess someone race, which already is very compl complicated on its own, but also, to tell workers to classify what they're seeing in the particular way that the instruct the, the clients of the or the people behind the instructions, meaning those who are developing the AI, are thinking about. Um, another way that another type. So the second thing is what we call residual category. Sorry, uh, binary and residual categories. We found that many forms of classification in data work are binary in nature, and from 
research in computing, we understand that binary classifications are easier to compute. So what, they, what we saw in many of the instructions is, is therefore uh, companies instructing workers to classify what they're seeing or what they're uh, coming across in a binary way, which is very complex, especially when uh, it relates to uh, social issues or social uh, aspects of the world. So in this task, for example, this is one for, uh, um, content moderation algorithm that would filter hate speech. And the task says you will be identifying messages that contain hate speech. Based on the text, you must select A, hate speech, and if the username contains hateful content, or B, none, if there is no hateful or abusive language in the given. And then, like this, oh, there's another one, for example, uh, the bottom is one about, again, facial recognition. And here the workers were instructed to categorize spaces according to the following categories, male, female, or other, and others for errors, if there's no face in the box. And this is what we also call residual categories. In many cases, there is a binary classification, but for example, the, the second classification is for everyone else or for errors as well, which we argue is very complex and complicated when, uh, because, and as Abiyo Behan, who is a computer scientist from Ethiopia argues, human nature is fluid, messy, difficult to classify in binary way. So, and finally, what we saw in the instructions in terms of linguistically performed elements is also that these, these courses that we see in the instructions serve to uh, manage the workers, to put the workers in line to perform the tasks in the way that the clients want. Want. So for example, the first instruction says, we value your individual opinion, we review each result. So provide us with your best work possible. We understand this can be a tiring task, but if you are in any way unable to perform your best work, please stop and come back once you're refreshed. You may also see multiple queries with the same kind of visual treatment. Please keep your judgment consistent, consistent unless you feel that there is some difference in the two that would result in a change or overall score, and then in bold letters, Judges providing low quality responses will be banned and not paid. So what we're seeing here is then a form of managerial control that appears in the tasks as well. Also, in this case, there's some concern from the wellness of the workers, but also always remind them, if you do not perform your tasks accurately according to what their clients judge as accurate, then the worker will be banned and not paid for their time. And finally, um, we also understood that instructions were living documents. For example, in the final example here, uh, pedestrians sitting on the ground, it was a task for, again, training self-driving cars. It was a task of segmentic segmentation, so like coloring different objects in the image of a road. And the uh, people behind the, the task, they first of all classified all humans as pedestrian. And there were two categories for that, pedestrians either walking or sitting. And the people behind this instruction, they forgot that there were many people, mainly those experiencing homelessness, who are, for example, laying down or, or sleeping on the ground. So they had to pull down the, the, the task, transform, uh, uh, updated it, saying, okay, there is a new category here called pedestrian laying down, labeled for pedestrians laying on benches or laying or sitting on the ground, and then put back the task. So they had to relabel all the objects again, in case there were some people who were laying on the ground that they were not taken into consideration by the workers. And you may think, so did anyone, didn't anyone provide, like if you, if you saw someone sleeping on the street, didn't anyone tell the 
platform, hey, there is a problem here. So what we, and this is tied to the second part of it, the non-linguistic practices, is that it's very difficult for workers due to the power differentials to voice concerns. I have three examples in here. The first one says, uh, a worker, for example, is being here was afraid of being fired. And there were uh, many cases reports of workers being fired by any, voicing any concerns. So this worker says, imagine with this pandemic, what can I do? Uh, this person has uh, diabetes and she says, my medical situation does not allow me to go outside and risk getting the coronavirus disease. If I get it, I'll die. For this reason, I cannot take the risk and expose myself to something worse. I can't risk this job either because it's my only source of income. And later on the interview, remember the worker was saying that because of the healthcare uh, uh, services being deeply affected by the pandemic, there is no national insurance in Venezuela. So this person had to pay for their own insulin from their own pocket. So therefore they really needed the income from the platform to do that. And that's why they were very afraid of voicing any concern because as I mentioned, workers can be fired easily without any recourse. Then this is another worker who says, my priority is to get the tasks that pay the best, but I don't even have the choice. The platform restricts which jobs are available here in Venezuela. So I have to make the most of it to earn the minimum and get paid as soon as I get the task. So another way of seeing that of saying that workers uh, have to be obedient to the tasks because uh, even though platforms are easy to access, they all also, if you get fired, it's, easy, it's very difficult to retain the positions uh, of the scores and the reputation within the platform to keep uh, getting the minimum and gain paid as well. So workers try to be very wary as well of upsetting the platform in a sense, or the people behind the platform uh, in case they would get fired, for example, and lose their income. Finally, this is uh, another interview, uh, another in uh, interview in which Dean, who is the uh, worker we talked to says, Noise is what doesn't fit in your guidelines. And then the interviewer says, and where do these guidelines come from? Dean says, we will say, actually, we want to do this. We want to do that. And then, of course, is the client is the king. We translate that business requirement into something like into a requirement in terms of labels, what kind of data we need. So what it means here is that, and this is for the BPO, this is one of the interviews conducted by my colleague Milagros, is that whatever the client says is what he calls, what they call in the industry, the ground truth. And whatever uh, deviates from that, it's considered a bias. So again, the power differentials here are not only in terms of uh, aiming at extracting as much value as possible, meaning as paying as many as paying workers lower wages, setting their own rules and so on, but also to treat what they, uh, as, the, as, the, as the worker says here, to treat the clients as king. Whatever the client says is what it's done and whatever deviates from that, uh, thinking of the client then is considered as an outlier, as something that should not be, uh, be welcomed in the platform. These are a couple of uh, examples also from the, from the interviews. The first one says, errors occur all the time. This is a worker talking about errors that they uh, uh, have identified in the platform. Errors occur all the time, but since we are in groups on Facebook and WhatsApp, we alert each other and say, hey, don't do this task because it has a bug. It will flag you as mistaken, even if you have done everything okay. Meaning that workers then prefer actually not to try to improve the task because they say that, because they know if they voice concerns and so on, they, they could get fired or banned. So they just try to avoid those tasks with errors and then the errors keep reproducing it. Like the one we say, and, and when they find out, it's very costly as well. They want to mention about the pedestrian uh, or, or people laying on the ground being considered as, as not being considered as humans in a sense. Uh, workers would try to avoid this task instead of actually trying to improve it because the platform does not encourage them to voice any concerns. 
Uh, finally, this is uh, another example from a task instruction. It says, important information. What I'm sharing in this guide is based, sorry, this is not from a task instruction, it's from a worker instruction. So what we found is that even though many of the non-linguistic practices in uh, data work are aimed at controlling the workforce and at suppressing workers' voices, we also found that there is a lot, a lot of instances of worker solidarity that also play a role in how data is produced. And so many workers, because they don't speak English, which is the language in which most of the tasks is written, uh, they, they translate the task and they provide their own guides in Spanish for others to, um, to understand and, and perform the tasks better. So this says here, this is from the post of the person posting the, the, the guide, important information. What I'm sharing in this guide is based on my experience with the task. I'll try to explain it as best as I can. The tips that I consider are the most important to avoid being banned and the essential information to understand the task. Be careful. The task, no hatred, which is a task for, uh, again, content moderation for a content moderation algorithm is not available on all accounts. You must have been paid at least once. And it's important that you consider this guide for what it is, a guide made for you to understand the task better. You must earn real experience by doing the task with perseverance and dedication. And here what, uh, what, what is implied is that the understanding of workers that they have to comply to whatever the client says so the platform does not consider them as outliers and don't ban them. So even though there is instances of worker solidarity like this, when I like trying to explain the task and so on, it does not, however, try to uh, improve the task or if they find bugs, they don't try to like tell the client that the bugs exist or try to, for example, contest the categorizations or the ways of seeing the world that could be against them. For example, one worker told me oh, for this particular task, no hatred, they said, I found the sentence uh, let's kick the Latinos out of my country. I label it as hate speech because as a Venezuelan, I thought it was hateful. But then because the client didn't think it was hateful, probably the client thought it was uh, protected as freedom of speech, the, 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 the worker was banned from this particular task. So again, because of the power differentials here so extreme and the threat of workers being banned and expelled from the task, then even though there is worker solidarity and organization around the task, they do not... Um, they do not contest the, the, the worldviews of the clients that are embedded into the task and the algorithms later on. And finally, there is the materialization, which, has, which is that documents, interfaces, and tools, like surveillance tools and algorithmic managers, also serve to reinforce the place of clients as those who uh, are the only voices that count towards the meaning-making process of data production. So for example, this is a, 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 one of the interfaces of the labeling platform. And there is room, for example, to look at the image closely. There is a list of labels and so on. There is no room for, there is no tool, no, no button for workers to, for example, say there is an error. There is, uh, I don't understand, or I do not agree with the classification. The only thing that workers can do is perform the task as the client wants. And this is, we argue that this form of materialization is other way of reinforcing the, the, the places of power of clients in how the meaning making process of data production is, is uh, performed. And finally, the algorithms, the algorithms that manage workers. So thanks to interviews with workers and myself working for the platforms, I, I, I I found the three-step process that algorithms do to manage uh, the, what annotations are considered correct and what which annotations are not. So first, what algorithms do is that they match it with previous annotations of the same worker to test the accuracy and the um, spamming levels, that's how they call it, spamming of the worker. So for example, if I label something one way, 
and I label the same image again the same way, it's okay. But if I label two the same image in different ways, then I will get deactivated because I will be flagged as a spammer by the algorithm. Then the second one, I argue one of the most important and crucial ones in here is that clients are asked for data already labeled. And then they the worker is presenting with this data. And if the client doesn't label the data the same way as the client, then they are deactivated because again, they deviated from the ground truth which is the truth hold by the uh, client. And because most of the data is not labeled, just the purpose of actually outsourcing these tasks, what platforms do is to use the majority of uh, the majority, the, let's say the voice of most of the workers as that of, uh, as that of the ground truth. So for example, if most workers um, label a certain data, certain data in a way, uh, the majority is considered the correct annotation and those who deviate from that correct annotation are deactivated and then the correct annotation is then passed on to the client. So again, the voices the majority are considered here, but imagine, for example, those from minority populations who have a particular way of seeing the world who would disagree with the majority, then their voices will not be considered by the algorithm. And so here is... Uh, a summary then of my findings uh, in terms of the coloniality of data work. First, coloniality as an extractivist endeavor that has existed for centuries. When those in positions of power, usually from the global north of advanced economies, extract labor and extract value from those uh, in the global south, but also within that population, those who pay the price are most often those in vulnerable, population, in vulnerable situations or marginalized situations like women and children in the case of data work. And at the same time, this data production process serves to reproduce the worldviews of those in those, in those positions of power. In the past, it used to be, let's say, in, in, in ways of imposing one's religion, one's rationalities, ways of seeing the world. Today, it's in the way of, in the case of data work, it's in the way of classifying the world in a in according to one's uh, worldviews and for workers not to be able to say anything about it or contradict or even try to improve the system because again, the ground truth is held by those in positions of power, the clients of the platforms and not by the workers. So in, in this, the final part of my intervention today, I wanted to talk about a few things because I often, when I, I, I share my research, I get asked, so then what are we going to do about this? So there is no one solution for this because it's tied to it's tied to other ways and other power differentials and other ways in which the economy uh, functions and is structured around the world. So it's very tough. For example, regulation is obviously something that is desirable, but then international and national regulations of these global markets is very complicated. So for example, one, one way of seeing it that I, I, I tend to uh, agree with is for example, the idea of regulatory markets from Julian Hatfield from the uh, uh, Schwarz Risman Institute, which is to place a third, in, a third party here that can regulate all these platforms quicker than uh, national legislation would do, but also in a way that uh, uh, can regulate an international market and not only dependent on um, uh, national frameworks that are very slow in many cases. It's also, I would say, argue the responsibility of um, those contracting these platforms, the same clients, of the, I mean, the clients of these platforms, uh, to try to find, for example, those who are uh, with more ethical 
uh, who treat workers in a more ethical way. And this is why organizations like Fair Work from the Oracle Intern Institute come to play in which, uh, for example, they evaluate platforms and give scores to platforms. So we have a better understanding of what the working conditions are. And then it's the responsibility of those clients to actually go and outsource their data production uh, needs to those companies uh, who have the highest uh, working, like the better, con the best working conditions in the market. And finally, of course, support for local action. As many in the gig economy, for example, many workers are said to unionize, to form, to form cooperatives around the types of work uh, around certain platforms. So the data production, data work platforms have not, uh, there, there hasn't been any um, platform cooperatives around data production that I've heard about, but these are, if they emerge, this should be, I would say, uh, supported by clients and by all um, actors that are, uh, stakeholders that are involved in the data production process as well. And finally, related to the problem of meaning imposition uh, and epistemic dominance behind uh, data production, I would say that workers should not be uh, considered as potential sources of biases. Like in many cases, the literature of crowdsourcing has uh, address them in, the, in that way. Workers are actually assets. As I mentioned, many workers uh, have a unique understanding of the task, unique understanding of the data they are uh, uh, generating, labeling, and verifying. And therefore, if they're considered an asset, errors like the one about, oh, you didn't think about uh, people laying on the on the ground as pedestrians, I mean, as humans for your their labeling. These voices of workers would have been essential, for example, for the client company to understand the problems of their original classification. Second is the respect of fundamental human rights. Uh, it's enshrined even in the international um, Declaration of Human Rights that workers should be uh, paid decent wages, be able to unionize, be able to collect bar collectively bargain for their uh, for better conditions, which is something that platforms are not. And if they are not doing, and if the market continues without the oversight and also the responsibility of their clients, is going to continue still. And finally, also encourage external feedback, meaning stopping this idea that clients have the universal truth to err is human, like they say. So encouraging external feedback, especially from workers to improve the uh, data production process, to bring voices, external voices to understand uh, the labeling process better and to uh, think about better ways of producing meaning out of data or, or, or uh, creating meaning out of data. And this is when the workers should be then considered as assets and not as costs, therefore not only as uh, a source of value that should be extracted, but also as uh, potential partners in the way in which data is produced. Um, and finally, for us academics in places like the University of Toronto, I would say uh, to solve these issues, we need more reciprocity between fields. Uh, the idea that computing also requires the, human, the social sciences and the humanities uh, to understand how power is structured in ways, uh, if, for example, in AI development and deployment. More multiplicity, meaning that computing doesn't only needs quantitative research, but not to understand the quality of the social relations and power relations behind what com how computing is, again, developed and what computer solutions, how computer solutions are, de are deployed. And finally, a plural, 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 sorry, plurality of voices, uh, meaning that research should not only focus on the outcomes of, of technical system and dominant actors, but also on what comes before the outcomes. So a focus on development as well and being ethical in the development and not only in the deployment. And with that, I uh, finish my intervention. Thank you very much to everyone who is listening and feel free to contact me if you have any questions uh, about today's talk. Thank you very much.